and we're still doing time here at Around the Albums in 80 Days. Thanks for joining us again. I'm one of your hosts, Garrett. Allie is not here with us for this intro because we waited to record the intro to be able to announce the winner of our social media giveaway, but she decided to get sick right before recording the intro today. So it's just me for right now. And I'm here to announce the winner of the two George Jones vinyl records that we had for our giveaway on our Facebook and Instagram page. The winner will receive George Jones' All-Time Greatest Hits Volume 1, produced by Billy Sherrill in the 70s. It features George doing his early hits but in the 70s with Billy Sherrill's production style on it. And we also have a 80s George Jones album, You Still Got a Place in My Heart. And I'm excited to announce that the winner of these two excellent George Jones albums that we will be talking about in the future is Ryan McElrath. Congratulations, Ryan. And you can message us on one of our social media platforms. You want on Facebook, so you can message us on Facebook. Or you can email us at Around the Albums in 80 Days. And we will work out that, getting the records to you. And without further ado, we are going to get into the episode. Today we're going to be talking about some United Artist albums by George Jones and the transition that he made from the Mercury Star Day years to United Artist. Enjoy. And now we arrive at the United Artists years, and we're still in 1962, but this is kind of the fall season of 1962 when we get the first albums from George at this time. Talking about why he switched labels, I mean, it goes a little bit into, you know, kind of label people politics and whatnot, but basically... Pappy Daly was trying to follow this guy named Art Talmadge who was switching labels and George basically was just going to follow Pappy where he went and Pappy follows Art Talmadge where he goes and so we end up at United Artists. So this caps off the Mercury years and now we're in United Artists where for the most part the productions kind of stay in this sort of smoother terrain of the you know tender years kind of sound and whatnot but um, I mean we, we do get a lot of different variety of material going on United Artists, but the issue with United Artists uh, and and the switch and whatnot happening at this time is that there's still a lot of material left from Stardate that they can put out. Uh, they recorded a lot on George, and United Artists wants to flood the market with United Artists records of George so that whenever anybody wants to buy a George Jones record, the first thing that they're going to buy is something by United Artists and not Stardate. So, when United Artists is first releasing George Jones albums, they actually released a batch of like five albums right at the end of 1962. So there's an insane amount of material, and most of it is tribute or cover material. So we're only going to be talking about a couple albums that are actually new material. Most of this is just George covering other people. Um, but the reason why they did this was so they could get all their stuff onto the market so there'd be enough content to compete with the Stardate Mercury stuff. I wonder how it must have felt like to know that there was just so much of your music out in the world at one time. It must be very overwhelming. Yeah, can you imagine trying to put together your set list or talk to your fans about your music and like you're talking about songs that you literally recorded in the span of like 30 minutes one day while you were drunk like five months ago and they're talking about this thing and like you don't even know what they're talking about after a show. Like it just must have been mind-numbing. But yeah, George Jones, as we've talked about, is frequently considered the most over-recorded country artist ever. And so the fact that we're doing this in 80 days, you know, y'all, this is a lot of George Jones in 80 days. 
Yeah, you're. You know, we we we're we're really buying off a big bite for our season here. We just hope you appreciate the effort. But here we are. I'm really a big fan of this first album that they put out on him in 1962. It's called The New Favorites of George Jones. And of course, the title kind of hints at the idea of like, okay, this is new recordings, new songs. It's not the same stuff you've heard before from all the Stardust stuff. These are new hits. They really deliver, in my opinion. You have the all-time classic, She Thinks I Still Care, a number one hit that uh, was his third number one hit. Um, Open Pit Mine, which went to number 13. Sometimes You Just Can't Win, which went to number 17, and a whole lot of other stuff we'll talk about. So, uh, I feel like, you know, just to start this off, this has nothing to do with George Jones himself, but the background vocals on this is really, really good, yeah. and it really makes the album. Yeah, amazing. they really stepped up the game on the backing vocals on this. There's a, there's a lot more interesting arrangements of the backing vocals on this album in general. It stands out. I mean, obviously George Jones himself is good, but I mean, like, those... The arrangements on this, I think, is what really makes it a really strong album. Even the lame songs have good backing vocals there are, on it, them. It, the, the lame songs have such good backing vocals that it's almost like, well, is it really that lame of a song? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually kind of like it now. The backing vocals are that <laughs> <So> good. good. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, I mean, just to talk about, like, I mean, the first song, like, Poor Little Rich Boy, I think that... Um, that song has has a, a fun melody, and again, like the background singers kind of make that song. Uh, for for a lot of people, it could be a little cheesy because I mean they're doing this thing like throughout the song where they're just going poor little rich boy, poor little rich yeah. boy behind him. But I mean, it, it just kind of brings this energy and vibrancy to it that I guess like with the more raw productions before, you just really only have George wallowing and whatever he's wallowing in, and like the 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 the, the, the background singers just kind of bring like a, a new pep, almost the way that Margie does to me on this album this is a question i have um in terms of like not duets beggar to a king is that his first like happy song you know i i hadn't really thought about it while uh we were listening through but i, I would say no because like for instance you gotta be my baby like that's not a sad yeah. song you know like the, the, yeah, the, the, right. the, the up-tempo ones are not really I, I guess what you're saying is, is is it the first ballad that's happy yeah. yeah about the relationship and i guess maybe we're missing something here but it definitely it's it's the most like post window up above george jones song that sounds that certain way that is a happy ballad I weirdly think. this is just a girl in me but when i heard it i was like oh wow like you could like make this like a first dance song and i'm like yeah. oh that's like the only george jones song that i've heard so far where like you could <laughs> that would be like a real bad omen if you like used a george jones song as your first dance song except this one it's except, really yeah. it's it's a really really i don't know like sweet lovey-dovey like kind of song i don't know I think it was also a cover of a someone else's hit, and I'm sure my you know country constituency will come out and tell me who it was, but I, I'm pretty sure they put this song on the uh, Sings the Hits of His Country Cousins album, so that must mean it was a hit for somebody else. Um, I think it's Hank Snow. Oh, oh yeah, yes. Hank, Hank Snow, Snow, yes, it was a Hank Snow hit. Okay, well, now, now i got to go back and pull out my Bear Family Hank Snow box set and listen to that. Hey, um, you, at least you have one. I, at least I have the Hank Snow uh, box set, so I mean we're we're somewhere. But yeah, I think that uh, you know this album definitely has a, just a good variety of types of songs and tones, and I, I think this is sort of the last George Jones album we get that is clearly influenced by the rock and roll era in the way that the songs are arranged and produced with the backing vocalist and some of the tempos of the songs. Like after this, it's like. 
you get deeper into George just kind of digging his heels into just his ballad hard country persona. Whereas I feel like here there's still some confusion about the market of who these songs are going to because the the songs themselves are so different from each other. I feel like they were just trying to cover their bases because like Open Pit Mine, which I love, is a story song along the lines of like Johnny Cash and Johnny Horton Mm -hmm. because it has this whole tragic murder ballad aspect to it, which... You know, it's a little bit more like a Carter family type song than a Hank Williams song. I, I, I think that it's it's really good. It's just very different in terms of the arrangement, the style of the writing of the song than a lot of other George Jones songs. But then you have like, She Thinks I Still Care, You Sometimes You Just Can't Win, which totally sound right in line with like Window Up Above or some of these other songs. Yeah, when it comes to Sometimes You Just Can't Win, when I heard it, I was like, this to me... If somebody would have asked me what I thought George Jones sounded like, this would be the song that perfectly fit almost all of my expectations. I mean, we also have to talk about, like, the self-fulfilling prophecy of sometimes you just can't win, you know? Right. And, George, yeah, George being kind of the loser mindset where it's like, well, I, I just expect to lose all the time. Like, this is just a song that kind of fits that mindset that he has. Yeah, it's a very, like, autobiographical, self-fulfilling prophecy kind of song. Right. Um, so I really did like that one just for, for that. And we obviously have to talk about root beer. Yeah, so we've really downgraded from the pure greatness of Pappy's White Lightning to come to Root Beer in our ever-continuing saga of White Lightning ripoffs. This is definitely my least favorite one, and I might be biased because I really hate Root Beer. I hate beer. I hate Root Beer. I I was going to say the same thing. I absolutely despise the beverage Root Beer. If there was a song that was as good as White Lightning about root beer, I maybe would want to give it another shot just because the song was so good. I think that's as good as it's going to get. But this song is actually worthy of the beverage it's talking about, at least I know for sure. I've never had White Lightning in my life. I don't intend to, but I uh, definitely have had root beer, and this this song is about the quality level of root beer. You know what? I really think that you're being a little unfair to the song because, I mean, okay, it's not white lightning good but it's definitely not horrible i mean i really love the um you know the ba 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 bum you know i really Um, you know i i i will say for sure that when i first heard this song during my listen through where i'm hearing it in that context of it being my first ever listen all i could think about was how obviously it was a almost teenage market attempt at White Lightning because teenagers are probably not thinking about moonshine whiskey uh, as much as they might be thinking about a soda down at the uh, drugstore. So this seems like it was almost the teen little rock and roll ditty version of White Lightning. And I just thought it was embarrassing when I heard it. I was like, <laughs> oh, man, the, the backing vocals on this are so much more like Neil Sedaka, early 60s pop, that, like you were saying, the ba-ba-bum-bum is ba, just ba, ba, bum. very, uh, yeah, it almost sounds like it should be on a Carol King session or something. And I don't know, it, just, it sounded so obviously not right for George Jones to be singing about something as virgin as root beer and then to be singing it with this super hokey background. I, I, I think that it's definitely a objective failure, but in the sense of just looking back on it with this kind of like uh, uh, almost cute ridiculousness it has, I, I kind of enjoyed it the second time, actually. Especially in the context of this album, because 
not to start talking about my overall feelings for the album too much, but it definitely has a lot of variety of styles on it, but there's still this leftover aspect of the rock and roll period that exists on the album. And I think that this song sort of represents that in a way. And I kind of liked it being there for that. It added a level of lightheartedness to the occasion that I thought was fine. It wasn't exactly anything that I would necessarily try to dig out on its own by itself. But listening to it in the context of the album is fun for me. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't hate it. I definitely um, am easier on it than you are. I mean, it's it's there. But I mean, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I'm sorry. Well, you don't have to apologize. A song of much higher lyrical quality and just in general, better George Jonesiness, I would say, is the song She Once Lived Here. And one note that I just want to say about this song, which was written by Autry Inman, who wrote the Leuven Brothers' big hit, I Don't Believe You've Met My Baby, which is one of my favorite Leuven Brothers secular uh, hit songs, is that Graham Parsons, who is frequently considered one of the first pioneers of country rock music, was a huge fan of this song. He had performed it live with his band, the Flying Burrito Brothers. There are bootleg recordings of them doing it live. And I did read a story, I'm not sure exactly what the source was on this, but I did read a story about one of the kind of groupies that Graham hung out with a lot that would tell stories about Graham listening to George Jones and crying just from listening to the record. And she was of course, one of these more hippie rock band types that didn't really listen to country music. And she said that she was shocked that Graham could, again, somebody that was a lot, looked and seemed a lot more like a rock world guy at this time with long hair and whatnot, could listen to a hillbilly with a flat top and cry <laughs> at it. She was so shocked that he, he would actually like this so much. And he really loved this song in particular uh, and a lot of George Jones songs that he actually recorded and resurrected a little bit in his brief but influential career. And there's a story where that same person groupie that he was hanging out with apparently was in some kind of a club with him. It might have been the Palomino and they walked in there and the room was empty and Graham was kind of looking around the empty room with the acoustics and whatnot and he started singing this song just a cappella and she said that that was one of her favorite moments that she ever saw of Graham was him singing this song and she was so emotionally moved by it that it really brought her in more into the country music fold and she ended up liking his music and his band a lot more but so that's something that i think about with like, this song that sounds exactly like what would happen to me uh-huh. like i really relate to that I- I mean, I have chills, like, just hearing and, like, picturing that. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting story. And I love that, to my knowledge, this song wasn't released as a single. It would have been just an album track. And there's so many George Jones compilations that I can't speak to whether this is the song's only appearance on an LP. But I would suppose that the most likely way that Graham knew the song was that he owned this record. It seems like Graham must have owned many George Jones albums that he pulled obscure tracks off of. One of them we'll be talking about with the George Jones and Gene Pitney collaboration. But it just kind of gives me a nice feeling to think that this is an album that maybe Graham Parsons had in his record collection and he would go back to this song all the time. So I enjoy this song for that reason and also the fact that 
the lyrics of it are really awesome to me the way that there's not really a a hook or a chorus so to say that is returned to it's almost like just a block of lyrics that george sings through Mm -hmm. and i like that again we were talking about songs that kind of build off of other songs topics and this one definitely fits in with the number one hit on this album she thinks i still care because it talks about this idea that uh a lover is haunting him and his memory and his ability to try to live his life and move on. And that's what's happening here because he's talking about how he is trying to go to a, or or maybe is being venerated in a city that he can't really stand because she, her memory is there in the city and she, or maybe she actually lives there. It's a really interesting take on that same concept to me. And I think that it definitely ties in in a good way to the bigger hit, whereas like Root Beer is obviously more <laughs> just like a knockoff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely think that this one is very relatable to a lot of people. I mean, we forget nowadays, right? You have a breakup most of the time. I mean, you can get on a plane and like, or pick up and just move wherever. But in this day and age, like if you dated somebody that you grew up with, I mean, your family most likely had lived there for years and years and years. You're not just gonna, you know, pack all your things and run away to New York City, you know, because you had a really bad breakup. You were stuck there. And then if they were with somebody else, you were stuck watching them be like that, you know? Like, you can't move your whole family because of a breakup. And so you're stuck in this town with the memories like it talks about and with the people that knew you guys together and you will probably know them for the rest of your life because that's the way it was back then. And you have to know that you're not together anymore. I can't imagine much better country music lyrics than I see her face in the cool of the evening. I see, I hear her voice in each breeze loud and clear. Oh, there must be a town without memories, but not this one for she once lived here. That's such a perfect encapsulation to me of the way that country music can take these feelings that you're talking about and just turn it into that rural poetry that uses these great metaphors of imagery and very real sounding symbols of breezes and towns and cool of the evening things like that that really bring it into this kind of realm of realism but also the inner pain of heartbreak right it's like it's simple but it's complex in its simplicity And I really love that too. The last song I just think we should mention and we don't have to get fully into it because it's a big hit and there's a lot of information about it for people out there is the song She Thinks I Still Care, which was George Jones's third number one hit single that we are now talking about. And this song kind of is a turning point for George because it was at this time that he started to really get into the greater public sphere through the greatness of his voice. This song increased his reputation so much as a singer that it was almost a before and after uh, She Thinks I Still Care situation where before there were maybe select few that knew of George's prowess as a singer, but after this song came out, it started to become just more universally known that George Jones is the greatest country singer. And this song got covered by so many people, both in the country and pop world, that it became a country music standard. But it also became this uh, kind of point for George of 
a problem where now he's having to live up to this great reputation that he holds that we've talked about before right yeah i mean i i do really like that song i think personally it's a little bit overplayed a little maybe overrated but i wouldn't go that far it's just not as good as i think people make it out to be if that's fair i think that it's a great song because it's very very simple and George's performance of it is beyond simple. And so you have a song that is clearly a song that does not necessarily challenge the singer in and of itself, but George steps up to the plate and just demolishes it. He absolutely kills the performance. And it makes it where, for some reason, this song, other people actually want to do covers of it. And I think because the song itself is so simple that you can actually perform it without feeling this burden of responsibility to carry along the George Jones performance with you. There are so many versions of this song by people like Jerry Lee Lewis or Elvis Presley. And I, I, I love the fact that this song is a great example of George Jones's pedal steel like voice, how he comes into the lines with the uh, almost the way that a pedal steel would slide into the mm-hmm. note where he says, just because I asked that kind of way that a pedal steel would would play. I, I love that aspect of it. And I just think that it has a very distinctive melody, and that's why it has endured. It's a melody, and it's a almost humorous song that is made not humorous by how George approaches it, because the lyrics itself are kind of funny, where it, you can almost have a Jerry Lewis skit out of this or something, where he's uh, saying, oh, yeah, well, I mean, I called her 10 times last week, but... I don't understand why she thinks I still care about her. It's, it's almost like a late night comedy joke or something. And George instead takes that and turns it into this really tragic thing where this guy is so deluded that he, denial. yeah, he's totally in denial about the fact that he is nowhere close to over this person, but he's trying so hard to make it seem like he is. And, one thing that was pointed out in the Cocaine and Rhinestones episode about this song, well, about this era for George, and when he was talking about this song that I thought was interesting was that it sort of was written initially with that comic idea in mind by Cowboy Jack Clement, who is a guy that I would need way more time to discuss fully here, but he was a great producer, great songwriter for people like Johnny Cash. And... It was written that way, and then George does it with this really severe sincerity, and pretty much every... I I can't think of a single cover version of this song that is humorous. It's all in the George Jones vein of the heartbreak aspect, not the comical aspect. Nobody has attempted to pull the comedy out of it. I think Tyler said that, like, there were covers that attempted it, but it just didn't work. Like, you can't do it now. Right. It stayed sung. It did. The new favorites of George Jones. What do you give as a rating for this album? You rate it first. I rate this album first? Yeah, I normally rate them first. Okay. I think that this album has some all-time classic George Jones songs on it. I absolutely love She Thinks I, uh, she thinks I Still Care. I love She Once Lived Here. Open Pit Mind is definitely one of my favorites because of its 
kind of different songwriting aspect. Sometimes you just can't win. I like even the filler on this album is very unique and fun. And I like that this is an album that has a good mix of styles to it. It seems like it was trying to kind of hit different aspects of where the country music industry was at the time. There's some pop country, there's some ballads, there's kind of a mix of these different styles. And so I think that it's actually a very good representation of where George was in the early 60s, whereas a lot of these albums may be focusing on just one particular artist being uh, paid tribute to or some other kind of thing that doesn't fully represent just what George was doing just in terms of singles and his own artistry. So I like that this album is kind of the point for that in 1962, that if you really want to know what 1962 George was, this album is more of like the, the beacon point for that. So I would give it a seven. I think that's fair. I, I put it, I was thinking in my head, maybe more of like a six, six and a half, but I feel like you've sold me on the seven score. I mean, definitely some really good songs i feel like george is really coming into himself like you said and Mm -hmm. really learning how to use his voice as an instrument and there are some songs that i like a lot but it's definitely not you know my absolute favorite so far but it is very good it's not my absolute favorite so far either because there are higher highs and lower lows over the course of it but i would say that similar to what I said about maybe White Lightning, that I think that this album is just a good representation of where George was at this stage in his career, of his development, of what kind of styles he was trying on. It doesn't fully capture everything because there are singles that weren't on the album. There's obviously like five other albums from this year alone that obviously have other kinds of songs and production on them. But I think in general, if I were to buy one album from George Jones in 1962, this would probably be the smart choice of what to buy. So that's why I would give it a seven. Okay. We're going to talk about Sings the Hits of His Country Cousins from 1962, which was released kind of in the same batch as New Favorites of George Jones and a lot of the other ones we're talking about here because... When George moved to United Artists, he did a bunch of sessions where I guess he recorded enough songs for them to do like five albums right off the bat with him. So these albums all kind of have overlap with each other. For instance, we talked about in the last album, uh, Beggar to a King, that that song is on this album as well. So they're, they're kind of overlapping songs that make sense. Sings the hits of his country cousins obviously gives you room to kind of place some of those songs on other albums. Like there's songs on this album that are going to be on the gospel album that he's doing as well, or the Bob Wills tribute album or the Hank Williams tribute album. It's like he can pull all these different albums out of sessions of doing other people's famous material. So this album falls in line with the album that we talked about previously from Mercury Uh, that was another Sings Other People's Hits album. There's no charting singles from this album, to my knowledge. I think it was just an LP concept that we're going to have George record a bunch of other people's hits. Obviously, he can't really have a hit with this, so we're just going to package it onto an LP to flood the market and create a back catalog of United Artists recordings. Right. Um, I'm going to let you finish, but... 
Peace in the Valley is the best song George Jones has recorded to this point. I'm really surprised by that, that you would say that, because I absolutely love the song Peace in the Valley. It's one of my all-time favorite songs. It's definitely something that, like, if I were going to have the short list of songs to play at my funeral or something, it's one of those songs. It's an it's an all-timer for me. But this version, um, I, I think it's great, and I love it. I love George's vocal on it, and I definitely would listen to it over and over because it's one of my favorite songs and he's a great vocalist and it's a it's a great take but I don't really think of it as better than average George Jones I guess I would say that to me this recording of it is it's moving it's good but I don't hear George throwing himself into it the way he throws himself into like please take the devil out of me see I disagree I mean granted because I think it's very important that we should recognize at some point in this whole podcasting journey that I normally listen to only like eight artists and like three albums at a time you know I don't ex- I don't have a big she doesn't have a palette. wide musical palette there are I'm like a picky eater I eat chicken I'm like I'm a picker eater in terms of music where like if my musical taste was food it would be like chicken tenders and french fries I recognize this so, you know, maybe it's because I haven't heard so many versions of Peace in the Valley. But when it came on, I mean, I was, like, emotional. And maybe I'm just being a woman about it. But I got, like, teared up. Like, I really thought it was really, really good. He's really, really moving. Especially just knowing what I know about George Jones and how he really did struggle to find the inner peace his whole life. Like, he talks about how he doesn't know why he does the things that he does and why he can't basically just enjoy a quiet life or like give up alcohol or like give up the drugs and just be the man that he wants to be he struggles to find peace and then to hear him sing so early on in his career that there will be peace in the valley and to know that he basically really got a lot better right before he died and then for me to think well I hope now you know he really does have the peace in the valley you know absolutely I think part of it may be the phenomenon that as you said, hearing other versions of the song before George's, I just view the song in a certain way that's hard for me to shake. The version of the song I'm thinking of that I personally love the most and I would consider an all-time favorite recording in general is the Elvis Presley version with the Jordanaires. And I like that the Jordanaires are on this too and that they're giving it that Elvis feel to it. But Elvis's version to me is just so definitive to me that it's hard to hear it in other ways but I think that obviously George Jones is in my mind a vocalist of equal influence and importance in his way to his genre the way that Elvis was to his and I absolutely love this version too I I, I guess I would just say I'm surprised at how you view this performance of George's in comparison to all the other ones in his catalog, where you're saying it's like the best thing that he's done so far. (laughs) But I can kind of see what you mean in the sense that we've been talking about a lot of songs where George sounds really raw, untrained. He's still in the early stages of learning his voice. So on a song like Please Take the Devil Out of Me, which we both really loved, he sounds... Uh, you know very much in this state of trying to learn himself and his voice whereas on this song I believe George had found himself by this point and he found his voice and his approach 
and it makes it where it sounds a lot more smooth and more complex and that he's really almost taking a slow approach to pulling out all the intricacies of a song whereas before he might have just kind of hit it with a hammer now he's really taking it piece by piece and uh allowing you to really have a full experience with the lyrics and with his phrasing and with the song and so i do like that about this song that it represents a new era for george singing gospel music that he's able to imbue the songs with a new level of sensitivity and emotional complexity yeah, I agree with that. Wings of a Dove is another gospel song that appears on this album that I think that we both agreed that we like. It was a big, big hit for Ferlin Husky. That's why it's on the sings the hits of his country cousins. And it's interesting to me that a song that is this obviously just a gospel song would be such a big secular gospel hit at that time but gospel music and country music really had this symbiotic relationship where one fed off of the other at all times and so it makes sense in that way that a song uh, that's this catchy and melodic would have a, a a hold of fascination over the public that people loved the song so much and covered it so often but I, I like George's version a lot I'm not overly familiar with the Ferlin Husky version, to be honest. This I've probably heard George's version of this more times than Ferlin's, and I like George's equally to Ferlin's from what I remember of the the hit one. So I think, I've never heard that one. So I think George Jones's version is great. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a a reading that's good enough that it didn't make me just wish to hear the original hit version. So to me, that's a about as great of a, a cover as you can do, especially on a song that was a huge hit for somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. I like the version that he does on this album of Yes, I Know Why, which we talked about his earlier version on a previous album. But I like this one because you're hearing George do a song that he had done just so recently, like within the past five or six years. And he's doing it now in the early 60s with a completely different voice and production style. And it's interesting to hear that change that if you wanted to hear just how much George Jones's sound and style developed just within that five or six year period, you can play the first recording of this song and the second back to back and you'll hear it. It's really obvious. It is really good to hear George grow into his voice, like you're saying, and to have like concrete, you know, like before and after i really do like that yeah for me one of the things that i enjoy is taking a song that you can use as that a b point and really see the change in style or uh maturity of artistry when you use the same song it's almost more obvious to see it happen Mm -hmm. one of the first times i ever did that was hearing elvis do a version of a song And then hearing the Beatles do a version of that same song and how different the Beatles did it versus how Elvis did it. Just in that, again, like probably a six or seven year time span. And that really gave me a fresh perspective on how one can approach a song. Absolutely. And then so there's um, a little bitty tear that you said that you weren't familiar with before. I wasn't familiar with the song before hearing this album, which was surprising to me because it was apparently a very big hit for Burl Ives, who most people will know 
for playing the the character that he plays in the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer special. And he also was in a bunch of stuff at this time, like Disney movies. Uh, he was also in a movie with Paul Newman, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. So he was a famous actor, but he was also a well-known recording artist too he recorded a lot of folk and country-ish songs he was a little bit more on the pop side of things and i had never heard his version of this song before so that was the hit of this but i had never heard it prior to this and i enjoyed it it was interesting because hank cochran actually wrote this song and he wrote a lot of the big hits for people like patsy klein or eddie arnold these nashville sound artists and it was interesting to hear a song that had a little bit of a different style than I was used to from Hank Cochran and I liked hearing George do a reading of a Hank Cochran song in this way I'll definitely have to check out some of the original hit versions of that one yeah because I didn't know again that it was a cover or a different song so. I like the version here of don't let the stars get in your eyes which was a big hit for a guy named Slim Willett. I believe in 1950 or so and it's a very 1940s style country music melody and it was one of those songs that I think he had originally recorded the song as a demo or on a really small indie label and it ended up blowing up in its local area and got put on a major label and it became a number one hit and even the answer song to it by a female artist became a number one hit as well and that song has lived on at this point obviously for a decade after that to where George Jones is now doing a version of it and this song always gets stuck in my head every time I hear it. it's got such a strong melody to it that I find myself almost waking up in the night sometimes with it stuck in my head and trying to get it out <laughs> that's what happens when you have to keep waking up with a baby you get these songs stuck in your head yeah you wake up randomly at 3 a.m having to try to put them back to sleep and all you can think about is don't let the stars get in your eyes I've had wings of a dove like in, the, in my head in the middle of the night Apparently, there's something about these George Jones covers that just stick in the ear somehow. Well, you know, like, we're trying to do these albums in 80 days, so we're basically eat, breathing, and sleeping George Jones, and proof that we're sleeping George Jones is that True. we hear him in the morning, in the middle of the night. All right, so what's your rating, kiddo? My rating on this album is just going to be, I will say, a four. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe, uh, well, yeah, I'll give it a four. I almost went to three, but I will, oh. I, I, I'll say four just because Peace in the Valley is great. I do love uh, Yes, I Know Why and Wings of a Dove, Little Bitty Tear, Don't Let the Stars Get In Your Eyes. All those are fine, but on the George Jones scale, again, this album just feels like he's just recording stuff for album filler. It's him doing other people's hits. It's not necessarily super strong George Jones performances consistently. For instance, if you look at the other songs on the album that we didn't talk about, like Roy Acuff's The Precious Jewel or Johnny Cash's Give My Love to Rose, I think that in general, the songs on this are, they're, they're great songs, but George Jones doing them does not really excite me so much that it replaces the originals. I'm not going to be running to hear George Jones's version of Give My Love to Rose versus Johnny Cash's. So I think that the album is good. I just don't think that it is one of the better Jones efforts, and especially with just how many albums are coming out at this time. 
it's just kind of in that middle ground to me. I don't think it's bad. I just think it's a little bit too in the middle to be memorable. Well, I mean, okay, again, Peace in the Valley, 10 out of 10 song. I'm mm. going to give that a 10 out of 10 right here. But as an album, like for the album as a whole, I'd give it a 5 at least. I mean, it's like George at like 50%. Like as a whole, I'd say it's 50% George Jones capacity, so... I feel that. I I guess as I was starting to talk about what was on the album, thinking more about it, I felt like I was being a little unfair to it, I'll admit. I just, it's it's hard for me to give albums like this a five when I know the kind of stuff that's coming and to think that, you know, I want to try to save higher ratings for those. But I also, the way that I tend to try to rate things is to think in this way is this the best possible version of what this is going for? Mm -hmm. Is this the best possible tribute to other country hits album that George Jones could do in 1962? I don't think that it's the best possible, but I think that they did a really good job in the sense that they were just churning out these songs real quick. I mean, Pappy Daly would try to get like six songs out of one session. So I I understand why the arrangements can be a little samey and whatnot. And I think that George definitely brings the emotion to each song. It's, he's not phoning it in here. It's just not necessarily the most powerful versions that I could imagine because I, I already know these songs by their original artists, so it just makes it a little harder for me to love them. But I, I think that a five is perfectly fair. I'll... Then I'll keep your four. Don't let me pressure you No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm changing to a five. I'm saying a five is fair. Okay, all right. Now we have Homecoming in Heaven, and I need to say this. I cannot stand this album. I think this is, like, wow. the worst album wow. on here so far. I mean, really, I think it's... Oof. It's horrible. It's truly horrible. All right, so explain. And why is this album so much more horrible than everything that we've heard so far? Because this is definitely the most animated reaction i've heard from you on any of the albums so far so what makes homecoming in heaven the worst georgia jones album you've heard so far okay i feel like too as a christian i'm offended at this album oh because it's so cheesy it's like if you're not a christian and you pull up this album you're like oh well this is what all christian music sounds like this like you know Christian radio, like, over, like, overproduced yet underperformed. I mean, the lyrics in some of these songs are just so boring and awful. Someone watching over you has that whole monologue. And I, I don't care who you are. You cannot monologue in a song. Every single time you think, oh, I'm the exception. Oh, I can do it. No, it's cringe every time. I, I think that guy in the ink spots that every time, you know, they do a song and, you know, the whole song is something like, I don't want to set the world on fire. They always had that one monologue from the bass dude where he comes in and is like, honey, I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to love you, sugar doll. Like that guy, he can kill the monologues. But yeah, everybody, everybody else. Yeah. No <laughs> one, no one monologue. Don't do it. Don't talk in your song. Songs are for singing. That's all I have to say about that. And I mean, okay, the wandering soul version on this is really really good i don't know we'll get more into it but again as a whole it's just a really cheesy like vert like album doesn't even sound like george believes half of what he's singing i know that he does so it like irritates me even more it just 
Not a good album. I would say that is... I don't have as an animated a hatred for it that <laughs> when, when I bought this album, it was one of the first early George Jones albums that I bought because it, it really was just a matter of seeing it at a record show and it was a very early George Jones record, obviously by his hairstyle, the look of the cover. And I thought, well, it's a gospel album. It's George Jones. It's early on. I got to buy this because I love country gospel albums, especially ones by the major stars that are people like Loretta Lynn or Johnny Cash, people like that. It's interesting to hear their take on gospel. So I was very excited about this album, especially when I saw that Willie Nelson had written one of the songs. I'm thinking this is going to be great. And I've played this album probably I would say in the somewhere around five to six times or so since then and every single time I played I think I don't know if I just wasn't in the mood or something along those lines but I just didn't really love it all that much and I think that I just decided at this point that yeah it's just not a good album it's in fact I would say of all the gospel albums George recorded in his career and there's a bunch this is my least favorite out of all of them to be honest with you if I have never if I had never heard George Jones at all and you played me this album I would never listen to him ever again ouch <laughs> I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about this album except it's horrible the end do you I, have anything I, else I, I I would just want to go back to saying that the version of Wondering Soul on this album, I like for the same reasons that I was talking about Yes, I Know Why earlier, because it, again, it's a song that we have a early, more raw George Jones doing it on Star Day. And then we have the She Thinks I Still Care United Artist type era George doing it here. And I really enjoy this version. It sounds like, again, Wondering Soul is such a autobiographical, great song that George can't help but feel a little more animated when he sings it. So I think that it comes off a lot better. I also think the song I mentioned that was written by Willie Nelson, which is called Kneel at the Feet of Jesus, is a good song. It's not a great song. And in fact, in the realm of Willie Nelson gospel songs, it's one of his more forgettable. Uh, Willie's version of it from the early 70s is much better than this version too. But it's still a highlight on this album that I guess... For a highlight on this album, you don't have to try very hard. No, you do not. So, I would say in general, I agree. I think that I would give this album... I, I can't even really remember enough good songs on it to say I would give it more than a two. I would give it a two. I give it a one. I give it a two. Bottom of the barrel, one. Wow. Yeah, I, I, feel, like I, I feel like I'm giving it a two because... I just, there there are George Jones albums that have truly awful stuff on them. And this one, to me, it's just there. It's not really something that makes me, like you said, you're offended by it. <laughs> I, I'm not necessarily offended by it as I am just bored by it. I think that I hear it and I'm just thinking to myself, why am I listening to this when I have so many other gospel albums that are so much more interesting and better? Yeah. So that's why I give it a two. Because like a one would be, I'm angry at this album and how yeah. horrible it is. A two's just like, it's a bad album. Yeah, no, one. I stick with my one. Okay, okay. George Jones sings Bob Wills, 1962. Give me your first impression or your like smart person thoughts. Well, smart person thoughts. Okay, well, I will say with the context first off that Bob Wills is one of the most important, greatest figures in all of country music. He is the man that 
many credit for being either responsible for or obviously the popularizer of a subgenre of country music called Western Swing. And I love Western Swing. It is a Texan version of the big band swing music going on at the time in the 1940s where they're doing this hot jazz music with big bands with lots of horns and whatnot. But the Texans are taking that same idea and then turning it cowboy bands into bands like these big bands. So the kind of songs and performances and solos that would normally in jazz be taken on saxophones and trumpets and all that, pianos, all that kind of stuff in the Western swing world, they're being taken on steel guitars and fiddles and also piano, electric guitar, things like that. So as a big fan of this era in jazz music of big band and swing, I absolutely love Bob Wills and Western swing music because it's a marriage of two things I love, the swing and uh, country music, cowboy music. So I'm a big Bob Wills fan, I will say first off. And there are many Bob Wills tribute albums or bands that try to sound like Bob Wills that come later after the fact. I'm especially thinking of Merle Haggard's album from about 1970 called A Tribute to the Best Damn Fiddle Player of All Time or whatever the <laughs> name of that album is. And that's a great record. It kind of spawned a 70s revival for Western Swing. So you had bands like Asleep of the Wheel and Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen. Alvin Crow, all these people that are coming back and doing Western swing music in the 70s, and that kind of lives on into the Americana roots, Ameripolitan kind of years front to the present. So George Jones is kind of ahead of the curve a little bit here, because this is eight years before that Merle Haggard album, and he's definitely one of the few guys that I would say was not a strictly Western swing type artist who did a Bob Wills tribute. I mean, someone can certainly send us an email and correct me, but I feel like this is one of the few Bob Wills tribute albums that was created by somebody kind of outside of that subgenre because George Jones is definitely not Western swing. And this album isn't even really Western swing totally. I think that it's a Nashville approximation of Western swing. It's the Nashville session players who I'm sure are very familiar with Bob Wills and familiar with jazz doing these Bob Wills songs and putting their own spin on it, giving it that kind of mix of the George Jones honky-tonk with the obvious and inherent jazz qualities of Bob Wills' music. So I love this album because I think that you get to hear the Nashville session players do something they don't normally do. They get to take all these solos that are really cooking, and George Jones is getting to sing more... Uh, tempo songs and uh, he's tapping into his Texan roots by doing the Bob Wills music and I like that he's doing something a little outside of his normal genre of honky-tonk Nashville sound type music he's doing this western swing repertoire so I find it a very refreshing listen in the George Jones catalog and I certainly enjoy every time I listen to it well I don't feel as animated as you know the um the one we just talked about but really I kind of just felt like eh like it's not terrible but I really didn't think it was all that great to me like when I was listening to it and I've only heard it the one time but that one time listened through I was like it just sounds like you know they threw him in the studio said let's just record an entire album as quickly as humanly possible slap it together and boom that's that's the album and i mean there's two instrumental tracks it's like it's almost like george got too drunk to sing and so they put on instrumental tracks instead that is very odd for a george jones album that 
a George Jones album should obviously showcase George Jones the singer, and yet the last two tracks on this album are instrumentals. I think that they should have sequenced this a little better, where they could have put one instrumental track on each side of the LP, maybe just kind of put them in between the middle songs where they're just going to kind of be part of the program because that was a big part of Bob Wills's music was these instrumental tracks. So I, I like the instrumental tracks because it's obviously Nashville 18 guys getting to play Bob Wills music. So it's great, but it's also not George Jones necessarily, but I would say in general, I do feel what you're saying about it seeming like it was hastily done because it was obviously hastily done especially when you compare this to the Merle Haggard album the Merle Haggard one is way more nuanced it is more true to the spirit of Bob Wills's music I think Merle has a lot more genuine love for Bob Wills than George Jones does so there's a lot of elements to the Merle Haggard album that I think are done far better than George does it here but I would just say as a George Jones catalog piece I enjoy the sound because it's getting to hear George do harder country than he normally does at this time in his career on United Artists. And so I enjoy it for that aspect. But if I were going to look at my collection of Bob Wills related music and pick which one I want to hear that night, this one is going to be way less likely to get played than say the Merle Haggard or Asleep of the Wheel or just Bob Wills. Yeah. I mean, I had never heard any of the other ones. So this is my first introduction knowingly to Bob Wills. I mean, if you've played it for me before. I have played you a lot of Bob Wills before. I didn't know it. Didn't know how to compare it. So just to me, it was like, it was just okay. You put here that you uh, were confused as to what a roly-poly was. No, okay. I wasn't confused about what it is. I was I did not like the song. It sounded horrible. It's like, you know, something's really bad. Like, what even is that? That's what I was thinking when I was listening to it. I love the Bob Wills version. We'll have to play you some real Bob Wills music and see what you think after that. Okay, on um, Steel, the Steel Guitar Rag. Steel Guitar Rag. Yeah. Steel Guitar Rag. That one was good. That is actually the song when Bob Wills originally recorded that. The Steel Guitar player on that track was Leon McAuliffe. And he and that song are generally credited as being the popularizer of steel guitars in country music. So that song was so hot and so good that it actually caused this steel guitar in country blowing up. To my knowledge, I may be blowing that out of proportion. That's what I remember reading. No, um, I could definitely see that. I really liked the guitar on that. And I that one definitely was the standout, I think. In my opinion, on my first listen to not really sitting and reading any lyrics or anything like that, that was the one that I was like, okay, no, I really, really like this one. And it would probably be my favorite on that album, just from a first listen through. And it's one that doesn't have George singing on it at all. Yeah. I like to kind of bring in some famous critics and writers' perspectives on some of these songs and discuss what they think about it, like I did with Dave Marsh previously. One quote that I find interesting about this album is famous author Nick Tosh's, who I have a very complex relationship with in terms of his writing. Why? Uh, I, I have read several of his books and just find his approach to writing about country music to be not really from a place of loving country music. It's more like seeing country music as just a stepping stone to what is actually good, which is rock and roll. Anyway, I see Nick Tosh's as being someone that is extremely opinionated in some ways that I disagree with. The man hated Elvis, for instance, so obviously we can't be very good friends based on that. (laughs) 
But he singled out Jones's singing on the warm red wine on this album. He said, the pure, stark sincerity with which Jones delivered the lament, I'm a prisoner of drink who will never escape, was un- uncommonly disquieting. It was more than a testimony to the power of his singing. It seemed a personal testament, a wail from the abyss as well. I really like that, and I think that sums up what makes George Jones so special as an artist, and when it's when I really love a song from him is when it's quote-unquote uncommonly disquieting. That's a really great descriptor, and I think it sums up why he is so special. I agree. I think that, and this is why I say I have a complex relationship with this writer, because he hits the nail on the head on so many different issues, but then also is so wrong on so many other things that I have a hard time with him sometimes. But in this particular case, I thought that he really summed up the appeal of what makes George Jones so captivating. I agree. All right, what's your rating of Bob Wells? I give it a four. Six. My favorites of Hank Williams from the same kind of fall season when all these albums were released. Again, no singles were released. It's just a tribute LP to Flood the Market. Seems like they were trying to sort of replace the Mercury album of Salutes Hank Williams. That Which they very well should have. They... <laughs> They were trying to create their own George Jones catalog, and since George had a Hank Williams album on Mercury, we gotta have one. So what do you think of the second take on a Hank Williams tribute album? I loved it. It's much better. I loved it. I mean, just really, really great like vocal performances. Of course, when I was listening to it, I was like, all of these songs are great, but of course, I mean, like, they're Hank, they're Hank Williams, so of course, you know, they're great. But, I mean, they were, I feel like the song choices that they chose were really, really good. The way that George sang them was great. I mean, I don't have any complaints. I loved every minute of it. I would listen to it over and over again, honestly. I was surprised that these songs, and Hank Williams has such a wide valley of great songs that you could pick 12 equally great songs multiple times from his catalog and make no repeats but i was surprised that some of these songs are so great and george does them so well that he didn't do it the first time around because to me you win again is a classic in terms of hank williams is really crushing loser perspective which george is so great at and i think i've read many times that george thought of you and again as his favorite hank williams song so i was surprised he didn't do it the first time around but on this one i loved it yeah and i loved you're gonna change or i'm gonna leave that's one of my favorite hank williams songs too so i love hearing george do that and it kind of fits that more feisty spirit of the margie singleton album that i mm-hmm. love And I love Take These Chains From My Heart and Set Me Free, which is one of my favorite Hank Williams songs. So this album is just more uniformly well produced and arranged and George's performances sound more there to me than the previous one. Yeah, I definitely really like this album because, you know, the other ones that we talked about, they have really high highs, but they also have really low lows. This to me was a very like consistently well-performed, well-produced album, and I really enjoyed it. I agree with that. And we talked about in the previous one that the album that he did first on Hank Williams would not really replace, for us, the original Hank Williams recordings 
Whereas you might think George Jones, the best country singer, singing Hank Williams, the best country songwriter, would be a recipe for this phenomenal success. But it was actually an, an exercise in making you just wish that you were listening to Hank Williams instead. Uh-huh. This album, I'm happy that I'm listening to it, and I'm not just wanting to run over to Hank Williams instead. I uh, Obviously, my favorite versions of these songs tend to be Hank's original versions, but these, to me, are more equal to what I would expect George to bring to the table doing Hank. I agree with that. I would, I'm going to give it a 9. Wow. I'll give it a 8. Okay. I wish tonight would never end. Such a emo teenager kind of title. <laughs> like you just imagine somebody with dark circles under their eyes and tears running down their face writing this in their diary and feeling all the feels and i don't know i feel like the emo teenager is like i wish tonight would end and i would never wake up but you know true it could go either way it could go either way this album was not part of that initial release of multiple albums that came out at the very end of 1962 this is sort of like the 1963 version of the new favorites of george jones if you will because this is the new proper studio album with songs that are not just tribute album or gospel album or you know there's these other categories of albums like christmas albums things like that Mm -hmm. this is a new proper studio album the only song that i could find that actually charted that came from this album was i saw me which hit number 21 if there were any other songs that were singles on this i couldn't find information about that online but that is the only one and it did not uh, crack the top 20 it it just got close but didn't completely make it i really really like that one it was very very powerful really powerful lyrics really powerful performance from jones again i tend to really like ones that you can tell george is singing from experience even if he hasn't written the song he could have that song said that it was a co-write, uh, but it certainly seems like George could have brought perspective to that. It, it has a George-like perspective in the lyrics to me because the song, again, builds on this persona that George has of this sort of loser in love. And he talks about in the song how he really sees for the first time what a bad person he's been in the relationship and how he has been doing wrong to his uh, significant other and that to me has a a George-like way of approaching this idea that I have messed up and failed is to say in this moment I saw the true me. Yeah I really like that. Um, I also really liked Lonesome Life in terms of like the background vocals. I really think that the way they mix and add background singers to George Jones albums in general are really good and I really like most of the time when they're on there. My only thing was it just didn't sound like it was very mixed well. Um, Like the vocals and the instruments just weren't balanced well. I don't know why but particularly that song on this album was almost like forgotten to be mixed or something. I don't know. Sounded a little more lo-fi than it should have. Like there were elements to it like you said this sounded muddier than it should have it should have been a single i would think because of the way that it has that kind of country pop sound to it but 
as far as I can tell, it wasn't released as a single. Maybe they could have made it a single if they had just gone in and tried to give it a little bit more pat. Yeah, I agree with that. And I really liked, um, again, the bass singing and I Wish Tonight Would Never End. It's fantastic. It's also one of the songs that I feel like is one of the best up-tempo songs in these early albums for Jones in the 60s. It has a little bit of the feel that he would get again in the music core days coming up with songs like Love Bug. It just has that nice, not completely rock and roll feel like White Lightning has, but at least it's stepping into that up-tempo, more good live song in a honky-tonk kind of sound. Yeah, I agree with that. I also really liked Flame in My Heart. Um, the back and forth call and response thing at the beginning is definitely my my favorite. I think it's a really good sound. Yeah, we talked a little bit about it with the White Lightning album when he did that song. I forget who he did it with because it was just some person that he did like one duet with. But in this case, obviously, it's Melba Montgomery. So this version is a lot stronger, in my opinion, because Melba's voice really matches George a lot better. And like you said, I really like that counterpoint that plays throughout it. And I like how it starts out with them doing the call and response, but then they join together in the harmonies. Their harmonies together, I mean, is beautiful. They had an amazing blend. Yeah, I really like the blend of that one for sure. And I love There's No Justice because you get to hear George do a Ray Price style shuffle like Crazy Arms. And it's got that just great up-tempo feel to it. And I like how the lyrics still have this kind of downtrodden aspect to it, but the song still sounds so lively. Yeah, no, I really like that one. I know you wanted to talk about um, Old Old House. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that we've talked about how we both love the Grand Tour so much, which is one of George's biggest hits from the 70s. It was a number one hit for him, and it's a song about a man who is giving somebody a tour of his home that has been left desolate because uh, something has happened to his wife and child. It's left kind of unclear in the song. seems like she has possibly died in childbirth or left him. It's not stated clearly. But in this song, which is sort of similar to me, you have, again, this idea that there's a house that represents a relationship that once was there but now it's gone the beginning talking about there's an old old house that once was a mansion so you have this it used to be opulent and beautiful and great and now it's not and times left a wreckage where once was beauty the old house will tumble down it just seems like to me a spiritual predecessor to the same idea in the grand tour yeah i loved the um and they planned to be married in the fall but her love withered in the last days of summer and the house stands empty after all i know it's such a great ending it really is but you know what i really want to say that this song could be great, but I really don't like the way he sang it. I don't like the way that it was produced. I think it doesn't fit the tone of the song. I don't think George's emotion is in it the way that it could have been. I think it could have been a lot better performed than it was. Which is what I thought when I first heard it, that the lyric was so strong, but that they just really dropped the ball in terms of the arrangement on it. I think that they just tried to make it not be another song like Open Pit Mine or In the Shadow of a Lie. They tried to make it a little bit more 
I don't know, like a peppy tragic ballad, <laughs> which just doesn't fit it at all. I think somebody out there, some country artist or musician, could take this song and the lyrics and give it a whole new coat of paint on an arrangement and get a fantastic dark Americana ballad out of it or something. I agree. I agree. The last song I wanted to talk about in this album is maybe my favorite on the album. It's called In the Shadow of a Lie. And we talked about before how I like these kind of tragic story songs like Open Pit Mine, and this one might be the best so far because it is some strong murder. Like this, 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 this is this is a song that sounds like it's just describing something that's in a true crime book or something. Because George's performance makes it really feel real, like a document of a actual crime case. Because he's talking about these very exquisite details in the song that come up about how he was on this fishing trip and his uh, wife's first husband was there and he's in this rowboat and he watches the partner uh, slip out of the boat and he says, a hellish thing took hold of me and I delayed my rescue dash, which to me is just such a, a strange line in terms of the syntax for a country song. Yeah. But the it really works within the context of this whole song because that's the kind of vocabulary that's in the entire song. It just has this... A uh, very novel-like way of describing a murder. Yeah, no, I mean, this really could be, like, a short, a really rad short story. Yeah, someone could, cause someone could expand this and make it an actual short story. But it's it, it falls in line with the ballads that, or the murder ballads that come from the uh, Appalachian and, of course, back to the European folk traditions of songs like uh, Banks of the Ohio uh, and Knoxville Girl, songs like that that are about these murder situations. But it's interesting because normally those songs tend to be about a man killing a woman because she's done him wrong, something along those lines. Whereas this song is about a man killing another man. Seeming, Not because that they were cheating on each other, just because, right, that he just... It, it, it seems like he's just saying that this was his current wife's first husband and that they are hanging out together for some reason. And like, he was friends with the husband and he let him die. Right. So, like, he didn't murder, you know, the guy because he was cheating on, like, his wife with, you know, them or whatever. Like, it wasn't an adulterous thing. It was just, like, he was secretly in love with her and he wished that he was married to her and how convenient for the guy to die so that he could marry her instead. When I was listening to this song, I, for some reason I thought that the guy was currently married to the woman, but this was he he was hanging out with her first husband for some reason. But I just realized, no, it's actually that he is married to the woman now because he killed the yeah, husband. Yeah. Right. Well, he didn't really kill. It's manslaughter. He, you he, know, yeah, he, crime of opportunity. He just, you know, he could have saved him. He just maybe, like, didn't try very hard. To he, save him? He just, you know, was not a good swimmer. He couldn't do it. I'm sorry. I wasn't able to make it in time. Yeah, but I I like how 
and I, I feel, you know, dumb for like, you know, reading the song in that way now, because I mean, obviously the, the beginning of the song is saying I lead a rich, rewarding life, a wife, a home, a car, but generally you can find me down in some dim lit bar. I hold all the treasures of the world, this fact I can't deny, but I'm living in the shadow of a lie. So he has all these great things, the wife and the home and all that, because of this hellish thing that he did and so he knows that even though he has this earthly success that his soul is being torn apart because he knows the foundation that he has built it on is lies and murder which just proves that it's not always you know just what you have but it's how you got it so that's true so what would you give the i wish tonight would never end album um i feel like maybe maybe a six i feel like that is Right on the uh, point that I was going for, also a six. People are going to be annoyed that we always rate albums the same. Like, True. I need to, like, rate an album, like, a two. We need to rate, like, an eight. Just to, like, I, I, feel like, I feel like we did that with the Bob Wills album. We disagreed on that one. It's just an album that I don't think it's as good as the new favorites of George Jones. It doesn't have any one song, like, She Thinks I Still Care. It doesn't have intensely good gems on it like new favorites does to me a song like she once lived here or open pit mine like the there are good songs on this album like i saw me is really good there's no justice shadow of a lie but these are still what i would call minor pleasures in the george jones catalog they're they're really good but they're not ones that i would put like on a essential george jones playlist or anything like that yeah, I agree with that. So we are going to wrap up this episode. We have talked about a lot of United Artist albums. And next time we are going to be talking about more United Artist George going into 1964, 1963, and 1964. And we're going to be talking about the first Melba Montgomery duet album things along that line. We've also got some early Star Day compilations that they release on George after he's left. So we're going to be talking about some albums that were recorded prior to all the albums that we were just talking about, but they were compiled later and have songs on them that had never come out before, so they count as studio albums. So that'll be kind of interesting to see how they continue to repackage these earlier George Jones songs. And I want to take this opportunity to thank everybody for listening to the show. We really appreciate any amount of support that you can give to us. If you tell your friends about us, the word of mouth is really, really a powerful thing. And we really appreciate any amount of help that you can give us in that regard. If you know somebody that loves George Jones or country music or just talking about albums and ranking them, maybe someone who loves doing that kind of thing but isn't familiar with George Jones this is a great thing for them to dive into as well if you just know someone in your life who loves music highly recommend that you send them the first episode of our show it would be a great conversation starter with you guys to listen to the George Jones albums together like me and Allie are doing and listen to what we think versus what you think it's just a a great way to approach the work of a major artist, in my opinion. We also have a Patreon set up around the albums in 80 days, and that is something that helps us to acquire the albums that we're listening to. A lot of these albums are out of print. They're not easily available online where you can just pull them up on Spotify or YouTube and hear them. 
So that goes a long way, even a little bit, to uh, our Discogs bill of ordering stuff. And uh, also trying to improve the sound of our show. Right now we're just gathering around my phone microphone, so I'm not really able to mix things. So Allie may sound a lot quieter, I'm a lot louder. I could do things like try to fix that if I had microphones. So any amount of help that you can bring to the Patreon, it can be as little as $5, anything that you feel like you'd like to contribute, it would be a huge help to us and we would be really grateful for that. We also want to remind you that I have a podcast that I have in the works called Country Air that would be more of a interview slash DJ format that would also be helped along by any uh, Patreon contributions where I could try to Uh, get the equipment I would need to rip my vinyl and start that show up and give you guys all an inside look behind the greatest records in country music ever made with the people who wrote them, produced them, performed them. I'm very excited about that show. We are all wrapped up here. I'm excited to come back next time and talk about the last of United Artists, uh, some more Starday compilations. We got a lot of good George Jones ahead of us. All right, take it easy, y'all. Remember, true love travels on a gravel road. Lane.